This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. There's a book that many of you out there are probably hearing about already, and you're wondering, where did that book come from? It's called A Burning, and it's by uh, Mega Manjumdar. And um, it is a book that I read many, many months ago and fell madly in love with. And then I, I had the opportunity of meeting uh, Mega at uh, something that we call the Winter Institute, which is this incredible gathering of booksellers from all across the country. And we're privy and privileged to meet uh, writers of all kinds, people who've got their first novels, of which a burning is, to people who've written for many, many years. And uh, it was my pleasure to be able to be at a dinner in which uh, Mega was there as well. And I think we, ha we had at least one course together, I believe. They were moving people around the room. Uh, Mega was born and raised in Calcutta, and she came to the United States to attend Harvard. Um, she then went on to graduate school. Uh, she also clearly had the literary gene because she went on to become an editor at Catapult and um, befriended writers of all sorts while she was scribbling away at this novel, this first novel that is um, so much on people's minds these days. So welcome to Literary Life, Mega. Thank you so much for having me, Mitchell. I... It's so surreal to think back to when we met in January and how all of us had this lovely dinner together and now we're all doing this remotely and calling in, but I'm glad to still have the chance to chat with you. Yeah, it was wild. It was sort of the end of, it was the end of January and you were, this, this was, I mean, you had seen it from the other side. You were an editor at Catapult. How long had you been an editor uh, at Catapult for? I started back in 2015, which is when the company launched its first books. So I started as an assistant, and then I started um, acquiring books, and um, now I'm an editor. So it kind of feels like I've been at Catapult for a long time because the company has grown so much and my role has changed. So you, you saw it from the publisher's perspective, and I'm wondering what this wild ride has been like from a first-time novelist perspective, from that January when you met all these booksellers and had no idea how anybody was really going to take your novel to where you wake up one morning and you see it not only in the New York Times, but then also the New Yorker and on everybody's blog and Twitter feed and everybody's talking about it. It was a uh, in an indie next pick, the number one pick of independent booksellers all over the place. So tell me what that was like for you. Surreal, you know. I think part of me thought that because I work as an editor and because I am so close to my authors, I knew what this process would be like, but there have still been so many surprises. Um, 
it feels very strange to see this document that you worked on in solitude, quietly, become an object. There's still something so strange about seeing coverage of my book. Um, sometimes I'll be on Instagram and I'll be scrolling and my book will come up as, you know, somebody's picture. And I don't think I'll ever get used to that feeling of, oh, I wrote that book. It's in this person's hands. Um, I've also been really grateful. You know, these haven't been the easiest months in which to launch a first book. We have the pandemic, of course. And we have the uprisings that are underway right now. So I'm very mindful that everybody is juggling a lot, stretched thin in many ways, and that huge things are at stake. You know, I think bigger things than my book are at stake right now. So that anybody would find meaning or comfort or a bit of rest in turning to this book um, means a lot to me. Well, and what's so interesting as well, and nobody could predict it back when we were having that dinner in January, but with the pandemic and with um, the whole discussion about race and what's going on, uh, thematically, your book takes on a whole new, um, you know, sort of a whole new dimension. In one way, somebody approaching it without reading it might think that it has a very narrow scope, but when you read it, you realize just how universal it actually is and how it, how it reflects our period right now as well. Speak to that a little bit. I was just thinking about this, that I started reading the book, uh, sorry, started writing the book years ago in a similar mood, you know, paying attention to how the state's systems of oppression really bring their full might to bear upon certain marginalized. Thinking about the parallels between the rise of Hindu nationalism and white supremacy in the US. I mean, there are scholars and journalists who have written about the links between Hindu nationalism and white supremacy. So it's very strange to me that I started of anger at what was happening. The book is launching in such a similar moment in the US where people are thinking about what's in the book, which is, you know, police indifference and brutality and injustice and how the court system might let us down, how the justice system might let us down, how nationalist media might let us down. Um, there's a character in the book who goes through all of these things. But at the same time, you know, I, my question for the book was, how do individuals confront this? You know, how do people still dream and make jokes and strive and hold on to humor, even in conditions of great oppression? So that feels like perhaps a hopeful way in which to come to this book right now. Modi and Trump have become best of friends, which I imagine from someone who sits where you sit, that must be just ultimately as frightening as anything can be, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, 
Yes, I think there are journalists and scholars doing vital work on this and reporting on this, so I won't say too much. I read the book originally, but then I just recently listened to it. And the audiobook is fantastic. And when I listen to it now, and I, I, it was a completely different kind of experience knowing what we're going through right now. The book centers on three characters, Javon, Lovely, and P.T. Sir. They each have their own voices, and it's so beautifully written. I, I, can't, I can't stress that enough. Each voice is different. You know, the insight in which you view the world of India as someone who doesn't know India very well, you know, I can almost feel the streets. I can almost feel the heat. Smell I'm the so smell. glad. I mean, you brought it alive for me. So talk about how the idea of the book came to be. Well, I started writing it from this place of wanting to respond to the rise of right-wing nationalism. What if somebody who lives in this society with huge power difference access to a little bit of political power, what will they surrender? What kind of ethics will they hold on to and what will they give up? So that character, so that question led me to the character of um, P.T. Sir, who's a school teacher in the book. A second set of questions that I had was, you know, you see people who strive and work really hard and really earnestly and they are still defeated by the systems within which they live. They find it hard to get ahead because these systems hold them down. So I wanted to see how such a person still continues to claim a certain kind of freedom, still tries to get ahead. And that became Jeevan, who is, of course, like I said, let down in many ways by the police and the justice system and this kind of wildly nationalist media. And then the third question that I had was, how does somebody who lives at the very margins of society, who is marginalized in all of these complex ways, how does she pursue this wild dream of becoming a movie star with joy and defiance and a refusal to take on the burden of any shame that society costs upon her. I just wanted to write this joyous character arc, um, a person who is funny and sees everything around her so clearly. Her voice was amazing, really, really wonderful. You know, I think it was in the Times where they said that this is a book to relish for its details. Um, how did you go about getting these details so right? Particularly the voice of Lovely. She's what's known, and it's a word I hadn't come across. A hijra. Kind of a hijra. So hijra is a social category in India, which stands at the intersection of religion, class, gender. Um, there are people who are considered to have a closer connection to the divine, so they are often invited to bless newborns, bless couples at a wedding. But at the same time, they are seen as outside mainstream society. Um, they are looked down upon. Um, and so Li uh, Lovely's voice came to me from this place of thinking about 
how not knowing English is also a kind of marginalization in India where English has such baggage. You know, it's the language of the colonizer, but now, of course, it's presented um, to kids in India as this language that you have to know in order to get ahead. It's the language of the future. It's the language of success. And I wanted to see how I can capture some of this aspiration and in the language. How can Lovely speak this English, which is non-standard, non-fluent, one might call it broken, but it is completely hers. She makes this language fit into the nooks and crannies of her life. How, how is English viewed uh, in India? The British basically established that the bureaucracies and education systems would be run in English, um, in part because it helps them cultivate a class of people who could serve the British um, and so English has this colonial history. Um, it is linked to the oppressor in India. But because India has such linguistic diversity, there are so many languages in India that English has become the kind of common language that everybody from all regions is expected to speak, at least in the regions of um, you know, higher education or bureaucracy or business. Um, and so English is seen as, in some ways, the language of the elite, for sure, but also the language of aspiration. Um, you, if you go to India, you'll see so many coaching classes and English coaching institutions. There are people who teach what is called quote unquote spoken English. And there, these are just all of these informal ways of teaching people English who are trying to learn the language because that it is vital for them to get jobs. It is vital for them to move up in life. Um, so English does have this role of, of aspiration in Indian society. And that's part of what I wanted to reflect um, the friendship between Jivan and Lovely comes out of Jivan teaching Lovely English. And ultimately, of course, this friendship becomes a test of them. Um, but yeah, English is where it starts. The narrative of the story is really, really important. You know, the art of the way you tell the story to me was even more important. But for those out there who are wondering a little bit about what this novel is about, I saw a description that I thought encapsulated it perfectly, that the novel begins with a crime, continues with a false charge, and ends with a trial. <laughs> and it's just about everything else in between that is the beauty of a burning. Um, you came here from India to attend college, is that right? That's right, yes. So what was, was that your first time in the United States when you came? Yes, before I moved here to go to college, I had the country that I had visited outside India was Thailand. Your parents are still there. Your family is still in India now? That's right. My parents still live there. My sister still lives there. I try to visit every year. I don't know if it'll be possible this year because of the pandemic, but I try to visit every year. So give me your impression. What was it like when you came 
from India to go to Cambridge, Massachusetts. What was that like? Oh, it was so strange. Um, I think part of what I found revelatory at Harvard, professors and my peers were asking me what I thought. And I really learned to think for myself, to argue, to question books. I didn't know before I came to um, Cambridge that you could book. I always thought that what's in a book is absolutely true and you just have to learn it. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, in India, my education was so focused on Indian history, Indian politics. At Harvard, I was greedy to learn so much more about the world. You know, I was just thinking, uh, I was having a conversation with someone where I was thinking about all the different um, first year classes that I took and they are all over the place. I took classes on Russian borderlands and South American history and African development politics. And I can see now that I was just trying to learn as much as I could about the rest of the world. Um, so I really loved my time at Harvard. Um, and being in America was so strange. There were obviously moments of culture shock, you know, the little things like how people say sorry and thank you much more often than they do in India. Um, but also it felt strangely familiar, I think, because so much of the rest of the world is so familiar with Hollywood, you know? So we grew up watching shows like friends when we had no context right? for what new york was and yeah <laughs> so it felt oddly familiar but also quite different you dedicate your book to your parents and in your acknowledgments you talk about the close relationship you have with your sister and also your grandparents as well uh tell me about your family uh well we are middle class Indian family. Um, my mom is a school teacher. My dad recently retired. And, you know, part of why I um, feel so much gratitude for them is that even though we were a family of, you know, ordinary means, um, where dreaming of college abroad was really quite wild. Um, there was no way we could have afforded tuition for an American college. They still encouraged me to see how I could make it happen, you know. Um, while I was in high school, my parents and I basically did this research figuring out, you know, what are the U.S. colleges? What are the SATs? How do I take them? How much do they cost? And then what are the schools which offer full scholarships? Because I knew that I wouldn't be able to go anywhere if I didn't get a full scholarship. And so mm -hmm. my parents did that work with me, you know, they, they opened those doors. I have been thinking about a lot as people ask me for thoughts on, you know, how do you write while you have a full-time job and how do you finish a book and that kind of thing. So much of, you know, so much of it is just inner, steadfast, boring discipline. And my parents taught me discipline. Well, perseverance too, I'm sure. The journey to become a writer. Um, uh, English was not your first language. So, so 
Did that happen when you were over here in the States? Is that when you decided that writing might be something for you? I have always, uh, you know, tinkered with writing in the way that many kids do. Um, I think I became serious about it when landed on the idea for this book. And I felt that writing this book, I think in many ways made me a writer. Um, before this, I would think of writing as a way of exploring beautiful sentences, but I didn't really have anything to say. And I felt that once, once I started thinking about this book, and thinking about this kind of political fiction that I could write, then I knew that I had, knew that I needed to write this book. And really working on this book over four years helped me understand what it is to, to be a writer with, with any kind of discipline. There's, a, there's moments in time, and I've seen it as a bookseller, and it happens rarely, but when it happens, it's so elegantly beautiful when a book helps define a period of time. And I think this is a book that's going to be talked about for such a long time. And I, I can only imagine what a young writer like yourself, you know, when you start reading these reviews and people are comparing you to Faulkner and, and Kurosawa, the filmmaker, that must be... And, and you're so modest about it. And it's so lovely that, you know, all of us, all of us are rooting for you in so many ways. And, you know, we are, we are, you know, I only wish all the stores were open so that I could be hand selling millions <laughs> of them. But what I'm doing now is selling them online wherever we can. And uh, thank you. Pushing them forward. Um, thank you so uh, much, Mitchell. You have been vital to lifting up this book you and gael your support very early support before any review was in and before there was any you know kind of buzz or attention or anything i think you saw something in the book and your early encouragement has really meant so much to me and you know it's 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 nice to see it's gratifying to see reviews but you know, early champions who take on the book when there is no buzz around it. It's just a few pages and, you know, it's up to you whether you like it or not. In that kind of early sacred space, I think you took it on and you've been championing it and that means so much to me. You know, I, the kind of thing that, that, that is so gratifying for us, uh, for those of us who sell books is, you know, I'd given it, someone had read it, I guess on Tuesday when it, came out right and um so that's just a few days ago and i just noticed online that they just bought 19 more copies to give out as gifts which is a oh really not a beautiful thing <laughs> that that's I mean, amazing you know overnight we've become like these virtual online booksellers i don't think i ever looked at what the online sales were before but now <laughs> i get to see you know what like what's selling online and it's so immediate sometimes. And uh, so your book has resonated beautifully and it will continue to do that. And what I'd love you to do, just so that everyone out there um, can get a sense of it, would you read a little bit of it? Just so people of can choose, choose whichever, whichever character you'd like or whatever. I'll just read... Um 
a minute from the start, if that works. You smell like smoke, my mother said to me. So I rubbed an oval of soap in my hair and poured a whole bucket of water on myself before a neighbor complained that I was wasting the morning supply. There was a curfew that day. On the main street, a police jeep would creep by every half hour. Daily wage laborers, compelled to work, would come home with arms raised to show they had no weapons. In bed, my wet hair spread on the pillow. I picked up my new phone, purchased with my own salary, screen guard still attached, conversation. These terrorists attacked the wrong neighborhood. The more I scrolled, the more Facebook unrolled. The night before, I had been at the railway station, no more than a 15-minute walk from my house. I ought to have seen the men who stole up to the open windows and threw flaming torches into the halted train. But all I saw were carriages burning, their doors locked from the outside and dangerously hot. The fire spread to huts bordering the station, smoke filling the chests of those who lived there. More than a hundred people died. The government promised compensation to the families of the dead. 80,000 rupees, which, well, the government promises many things. I'll stop there. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, there, I'll leave it with this quote that I also read, and I, and I wholeheartedly agree with it, as you can see from that reading. The interplay of choice and circumstance has always been the playing field of great fiction. And on this terrain, a powerful new writer stakes her claim. And that powerful new writer is Mega Majundar. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real honor. Mega's book, A Burning, can be purchased at any of your favorite independent bookstores or at booksandbooks.com or at bookshop.org, proceeds of which go to independent bookstores all across the country. 